Welcome to Time to Market, a podcast by Lean B2B and SK Murphy, where we share principles, actionable advice, and rules of thumbs for B2B founders. This week, it's all about creating effective co-founder relationships. So how can co-founders keep each other honest? How to work around different personality types? How to reach consensus? What to do when you're at a standstill? It's a delicate subject, but we really hope you enjoy this brand new episode. Hey, today we want to talk about disagreements between founders or at an executive team level and how to use them to get insights and reach a working consensus on a problem or situation, how to generate options to be considered and a plan of action to address them. And our opening quote is Herbert Spencer, truth generally lies in the coordination of antagonistic opinions, which fits a lot of startup team conversations I've been a part of, certainly. Yeah. So you're trying to get that one plus one equals three by having some of these uh, diverging opinions. So maybe we can start with uh, a basic question. What would you say is the, the job to be done of having a co-founder? So I think you should work with people when the two of you get more done or bring more to a problem or a situation than either one of you independently. So the reason to collaborate is you get more done. And that normally means that the that, that two conditions have to hold. You have to have a core of shared values and an agreement on where you're trying to go, but you have to bring different complementary skills or experience or expertise to the problem. So there needs to be different, different perspectives or different contributions that kind of end up adding to the would-be solo founder could achieve. I think you see that when you've got two deeply technical people that are both masters of Kubernetes, starting a Kubernetes thing, they, they, they tend to cover one portion of the problem like really well, and then two thirds of it may be a mystery, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So missing so many, some key expertise in that case. So you've worked with co-founders. What was your motivation to, to bring on a co-founder? Well, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that idea that a startup should have multiple co-founders. I think that is both some, something that was is heavily promoted initially. And I think only recently, some people have been making counter arguments that sometimes a solo founder is, is a good thing as well. But I think to, to be able to get funding, to be able to build a solid team, there's always been this kind of idea or concept that you need to have co-founders. So I've seen very good situations with good co-founders, bad idea, good idea, bad co-founders, and all these different variations. And I've actually, this is not my first rodeo. I've played music for years and bands, and I've seen what it is to be in a creative environment to some extent with different people trying to achieve similar-ish goals. And it is, it is always very hard, I find, to at least find the right fit for, for what you're trying to achieve, but also maintain everyone in sync where you're working on the same goal the same way or the differences in opinions don't end up overtaking the achievements that the team are trying to get done. Yeah, you're, you're Canadian, so I'm a fan of Rush, right? And I'm, I'm impressed that three guys were able to work together for like 35, 40 years, right? I mean... Have you seen their interviews too? They still love each other. Like, like, yeah, they like they're, they're still friends. That's amazing. Because when you contrast that to 
other bands like the Rolling Stones, for example, that seem to still view, view themselves as business partners, but would probably rather be anywhere else than in the same room as the other one when they don't need to be. Uh, I think there's different ways of kind of involving these relationships, but that is obviously the ultimate being able to do multiple startup with the same person and always have this respectful and evolving relationship with someone like that. I think so in the beginning, I think you need someone who's a little bit of a, I don't know what you want to call it, but micromanager, right? Because there's so many things that can go wrong and there's so many getting the recipe just requires this ruthless focus. Even that person needs someone to tell them, hey, I think you're making a mistake. So, so I guess my question for you is, what have you observed in ways that co-founders can help keep each other kind of honest and accountable? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a really important uh, question, especially early on, where I do feel there is a relationship with ego starting a, an entrepreneurial journey is I know better, or I want to change the world, I want to reshape things, I want to change this industry, I want to add something to the world. Like There is an a ego component that kind of comes with entrepreneurship, and especially when you assemble multiple people that, have, that may not at the moment have ego, you need some kind of mechanics to be able to sort out what is truth versus what is fiction, or what people would like to see the world do versus what is actually happening. So I do feel like sometimes having some sort of external advisory board or having an external person that is actually not a co-founder, but kind of acts as a, as a person providing feedback, also making sure that the, that you're not framing things as much as possible, that you're just trying to share information so that the other person comes with their own perspective on things. Cause I do feel. One of the core benefits of having a co-founder is, is having multiple pairs of ears and eyes. Uh, so you can somewhat balance your uh, subjectivity with your ob objectivity, something like that, where you're able to, to get um, benefits and having more objectivity in terms of your evaluation of opportunities, your evaluation of the market, your evaluation of reaction from interviews, all these different things. What about yourself? Yeah, I look at early customers as kind of almost co-founders, especially people that are early adopters. Your first six to 12 customers in B2B will typically, one or two of them will have a significant impact on product direction or unlock insights. And I think learning how to compromise, learning how to listen and to compromise is what you can practice with your co-founders first is good. I think it's a good idea to define areas of responsibility, to define budgets mm -hmm. in terms of both hours and dollars, to put this into writing, just plain English, doesn't have to be anything fancy, but I think there's a tendency for our memory to edit what was even what we believed. And I think you're gonna have to make commitments to early customers. It's also good practice to do that with your co-founders, to figure out I think sometimes people are too quick to make a commitment they can't meet, or as you've talked about an earlier podcast, sometimes people want to be a hundred percent correct and then they don't make commitments when they should. Yeah. I do feel like having some of these commitments as well, kind of frames the startup more as a joint venture or as a, as an, as an actual 
entity that you're trying to create as opposed to an artistic project like a band, more or less, where it feels more like you are actually trying to establish a company. So it makes you think more that this is in line with a job versus something that you would do on evenings and weekends where your emotions and all these things are, are part of it. It might, to some extent, help, help the co-founders kind of feel that this is a serious adventure that they're working on and that this is intended to be their next job or their next, next 10 years of their life. One marker I've seen for trouble is people who follow Grace Murray Hopper's advice, which is it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I think if you take action before you have, at least in a common area or something that's an overlapping responsibility without getting at least rough agreement, it's an indicator of future problems. It's a fine way to deal with bureaucracy, but it's not a real good way to deal with your co-founders, your partners, or your customers. Surprising your customers is not always a good idea either. Yeah, I really like your point about viewing customers, early customers as co-founders or at least as partners or, or any, any kind of relationship, creating that proximity, but also it kind of helps you take on some of their perspectives and fit that in in your consideration with the business because the business needs to be sustainable to be able to provide value for these organizations. But at the same time, it's by really understanding how you deliver value and how you provide sustainable value for these organizations that you get to that stage. So there's really that close collaboration and that is, is definitely a good idea to kind of emphasize in, early on. So in disagreements, disagreements can generate heat and light, motion and then yeah. insight, right? Yeah. How do you make sure that you're hearing the insights that people are offering in the midst of an agreement or disagreement about an approach or a situation? I do feel there's a, there's a certain type of personality, like oftentimes, like a, a lot of, especially if you're talking about software, like a lot of developers will tend to be more introverted. It's not always the case, but there is maybe a greater association or a greater fit in that, that direction. And I think it's important to kind of understand how to work with introverts versus extroverts and kind of respect each other's modes of kind of thinking about things or considering problems or coming up with their own perspectives on things. Uh, so one thing that I've done in the past, especially working with introverted co-founders, has been to take time alone to, to think about the, the problems themselves, come up with your own perspective, your own solution and then share that back with the team. So that gives everybody a chance to kind of go through their thinking process, not feel like they're being invaded with discussion, because oftentimes when there's discussion, more introverted people may, may stay more quiet. They may not be as willing to share their thoughts or share their full disagreements, which can create problems down the road. So I think people be able to take time, go through their own natural modes of thinking through problems, and then presenting that without interruption can, one, help increase that objectivity that, I, that we talked about a little earlier, but also help make sure that everybody feels listened to at a minimum, even though there might be ultimately none of the solutions that get taken or like parts of solution or the, the thing that is decided is different than what is suggested by the individual contributor. So I think it's a good way to kind of make sure at, at a minimum that people feel heard, and that's a good good chunk of making sure that there's no, no disagreements that keep building up and are keep, keep resurfacing between different situations. 
So I agree. I think the introvert-extrovert split is a significant one. Introverts don't like pop quizzes, and I think your suggestion <laughs> for written preparation is really good. I, I, think, I think introverts have this rich interior landscape, and it's not so much that they don't want to share their thinking. They don't want to share half-formed thoughts. Yeah. So an extrovert will blurt something out that's clearly the bad idea in, a, in an effort to try and move the con conversation along, right? Which is, there's value in that. I think the other thing to pick up on your point of listening to people, I think it's also valuable to write down the second, third, fourth, fifth best approach mm -hmm. or concerns, capture that because sometimes you're going to look back in three months and you're going to ask the question, how come we didn't look at this or what else can we do? And sometimes you can reach into the fire with your tongs and pull that idea out and go, Hey, that was actually a better idea than we thought. So I think it's, it's not just lip service. It's not uncommon that it's third or fourth idea that actually works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's, there's obviously a, a, a tendency in, especially in disagreement, to kind of bring that back. Oh, this was my idea in the past. I do feel having some kind of some kind of uh, way of working together where the, the best decision is made now. And then the other, like, we agree that this was the best decision now. And then we don't revisit, we don't, we don't go back to our personal preferences from before. Because just to make sure that the, the, the issues don't keep bubbling up, because these things kind of build up bad energy, if nothing else, like a bad mojo in the company where, where people are going to start holding each other guilty for bad decisions that, that were made for the company. So I think that's a very slippery slope and that can definitely lead to a lot of building up resentment and the company is going to start imploding because of this. So I think it, it's a good idea to just, we take a decision, we make a decision, we move on and then that's it. And then we'll reassess at the next checkpoint in the future. So I'll disagree slightly, or at least I'll, I'll offer a slightly different perspective. I do think that it's your obligation as a part of the founding team or as an employer to support the decision. But I do think it's very legitimate if you and I are arguing about something and you say, okay, let's do this. I think it's a reasonable thing to say, how can we tell if it's working or not? What are early indications of success? What are early indications of problems? How much time should we give for this thing to work? Yeah. And then if we reach this point and we haven't hit these results, we're going to revisit. So I, I yeah. do think it's... I think you can, as opposed to letting the guy just drag it back out of his, you know, gunny sack of complaints, yeah. it's like, hey, we agreed we were going to reevaluate in eight weeks. It's been eight weeks. We've done ABC. None of this is working. Yeah. I think we've got to look at plan B or plan C, right? And not, and not in a, you have to leave out the, I told you so, yeah, or exactly. I knew this wouldn't work or whatever. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that entirely. But at the same time, I think it's when you start framing this as my opinion versus your opinion, uh, that you start getting in trouble. I was, I was trying to find a quote from before about this, I, that was kind of saying that I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now, that most companies end up failing because co-founders can't control themselves, like can't control their characters. I don't think it's necessarily the number one cause, but I, I do think that a lot of things get accentuated or that they go down slippery slopes when people are 
making comments that end up building up and end up creating more resentment in the future or make decision-making in the future more difficult. So I do think similar things like that when you start making things personal or you start start splitting things into my ideas versus your ideas, it, it can, can definitely backfire because uh, you can easily uh, win the battle but lose the war at the end of the day where you end up uh, losing your startup, but you did win that argument. So you should be happy about that one. I, I'm certainly guilty of that in terms of wanting to win the argument, wanting to be right. It's very dangerous. I think, I think the other thing I've seen, and this, this spills over into sales calls. I've been on several sales calls where someone on the team says, I don't understand. We won the argument. How come we didn't get the sale? <laughs> and, and so again, I think the co-founder collaborative relationship is similar in some key ways to founder or early team, early adopter relationships where yep. there's a give and take. And I was, I was, when I was at Cisco, I attended a couple of the early, not early after they'd gone public executive team meetings. And what, what, what impressed me, I guess, was that Mortgage was clearly introverted. So yep. he was quite comfortable to let many people express their opinion. He would summarize it, not in a way that said, you know, this is a stupid reason because, but he would just say, okay, here's what I heard. And then he would go around the table and then he would announce the decision. Now, I don't know whether he came in the room and he was going to do what he was going to do no matter what, but he at least simulated the appearance of taking an input. And I believe that he actually did. I think that it was, it was, it, it allowed for at least a rough consensus to form because they didn't just go with the first study. And there were, the vice presidents were not shy people. They were extroverts. Yeah. And I think this, that's what they say made the part of the success of uh, Lincoln, that their servant leadership a little bit, where you're taking all these different voices, you're okay with disagreement. And at the end of the day, you try to reconcile everything and make the best decision. We don't see it as much as, as we should, but I think it's a very confident person that can be open to hearing all different types of perspective and yet be affirmative enough to be able to make or take on a decision at the end of the day that ultimately might fall on their shoulders. So when, when would you say disagreements are, are good or when are they harmful for a company? I think when contempt starts to sneak into things that it's a problem, right? I think that's a problem in a lot of relationships. If there's not mutual respect, I don't see that I'm going to work with this team and get more done than I can on my own, or I, I don't respect one or more members. I think that's a serious problem. The Spencer quote, Spencer's got another quote. He says, if before you investigate, you start with contempt, you're not going to learn anything. If you don't respect the people that you're talking with or listening to, you don't think they have something to offer. I think that's a, that's probably my number one. Yeah. 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 I, I think in, I guess this goes beyond uh, entrepreneurship. And, and business, but I think in good relationship, there's the assumption that the other person has good intention. So yes. when, when you get to that point, when you, you are interacting with people and you take that, that whatever they're making as decision might be different, might be something you disagree with, but at the end of the day, their intentions are based on whatever criteria you, you look at for this. I think it's a much easier way to have longstanding relationships where you are 
you don't have to think about whether their art is in the right place. Like they're, they're trying to do this. They might have a different perspective. You can easily distinguish the person's opinions or the person's current strategy from who they are as people. I think that that's where collaborations are much easier to some extent, where you, you kind of build that trust, where you know that the person is, is what they say they are. And then you can just uh, focus on the specific strategies and not really think about it. I'm sure a band like Rush, like we talked about, they were disagreeing a lot before, uh, but they still, uh, over time, they believed in each other's characters enough that they didn't have to wonder about X or Y or Z. It just became, okay, so you like this better than this, and I like this better than that. Okay, that's fine. I think there's two significant divides in terms of the way that people communicate or process information. And the first we talked about is introvert versus extrovert. And I, I think as an introvert, the extrovert is going to say the first thing that comes into his head and you, you can't, if he doesn't run of a customer, okay, that's a different problem. But, but in a, in a, in a meeting session, you've got to allow a certain amount of, of bad ideas, right? Because in those bad ideas are maybe a good idea. I think as an extrovert, you can't try and force somebody to tell you what they think just after you've told them, especially if it's a new thing, if it's a pop quiz. Yeah. And I think you've got to give people time. The other one is a little different, but some people proceed more based on principles and on a kind of a top-down understanding and then, or maybe an intuitive understanding. And then some people proceed based on bits of data or anecdotes or what somebody told them. And so there's this divide around the plural of anecdote is not, yeah, well, I think it is. And so yeah, if you're, yeah. if you're, a, if you're an intuitive person and somebody gives you a couple of counterexamples, I think you have to, you can't dismiss that. And if somebody is taking two or three examples that you've given and is trying to trying to express an overall rule, I think you have to at least go along with that and say, look, how do we, how do I translate my unique experiences into some guideline or some decision rule that we can agree on as a team? So I think that, the, that there's this intuitive versus concrete barrier that also needs to be, if you yeah. can't span that, I think that's the second gap you've got to yeah, yeah, just different learning style or different thinking style. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just, it's a different way to get to it. Like if you're, it, I think there's also value in that and like plurality of modes of thinking, if nothing else, I think that can be very useful. So maybe as, as a last question for this one. So what, what can tell you that this is just not going to work out with your, your co-founders? Like, like what are some of the signs or when do you know that it's just not going to work out? So I've seen two situations. One is where the co-founder was not really entrepreneurial and didn't really understand what they were signing up for. And so if you can't get to a team size where they can still become a valued, valued contributor by yeah. taking a narrower focus, right, yeah. then you've got a problem. Right? And that's a painful one. And I think we as entrepreneurs tend to project our entrepreneurial perspective onto a lot of people we meet and it's not there. Yeah. Uh, and it's not better. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a different perspective. The other one I've seen is where one founder 
kind of drives things and promises to distribute equity, but doesn't. And so you, you find yourself a year or 18 months in, and it's like, hey, what's what's going on here? Yeah, so divergence in terms of how, um, how we view the future or how we view our role in the future, but also a divergence in how the company mechanics should operate in terms of, and maybe greed in this case, actually specifically. I, I think it's control. I, I'm yeah. not sure it's, I'm, I'm not sure it's, there's also, I spent a day with two other people once brainstorming about a particular startup we were going to work on. And this was like in 2002, 2003. And at the end of the day, I don't know why, but I just had this intuition. So just tell me if we were to divide up the equity, how would you see us dividing up the equity? And the one person said, I, I think we should cut it three ways. And the other person said, I think I should get 90%. You guys each get five. <laughs> so, okay. So I, I said, so that's an interesting perspective. Tell me what is it that you're bringing that's, that says that you get the, you know, lion's share of this deal, right? And they had an idea of what they were going to do. And I said, okay, well, if you can, if you can go immediately and raise money in this environment, then I agree, you get 90%. But if you can't, then I think I like the other plan, right? Yeah. And we ultimately came apart because the second person realized that they had an inflated set of expectations and they, they didn't know how to back down. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do feel like there's elements in there that are telling in terms of ego to some extent. And it's also like, I find like elements where you see people are very static about certain point of view and certain things are often telling in terms of how, how likely it is that you're going to be able to have a longstanding relationship with the person. So like your person is flexible in terms of how you are naming the company out. These things that they feel don't matter as much, but they're not flexible at all on other things. You can tell that these things will probably get amplified as you find success in the future. That makes it very difficult to know that you're actually going to be able to have the, the, the su sufficient amounts of flexibility in the company to be able to pivot if there's things that change, if that people are still going to be on board, they're still going to be able to deliver value. So I think the ability to adapt is, is very important. And if you're not seeing this in, in your uh, co-founders, I think it might be a very, very bad sign moving forward. But this is definitely not the path that we hope people end up on. So... Or maybe sure to keep take takeaway for how people can resolve their issues or with their co-founders and make sure they have successful co-founder relationships. I think it goes back to, are you going to be able to accomplish more together than not? And if it, there's always going to be friction, there's always going to be disagreement. Some of it actually is going to be positive. If it crosses a point where, you know, one plus one equals 1.5, then you probably have a problem. Yeah. So I would, I would look at that as, is, are we able to achieve more together than we can separately? Yeah. Maybe I'd add another takeaway that is a little bit to piggyback on something you mentioned is maybe yeah. having these regular checkpoints with your co-founder a, a little bit, like um, you were talking about just to reevaluate the, the evolution of the company or the direction of the company but maybe include some element in terms of just spending time with your co-founder, seeing how they fit within the relationship, seeing how they fit within the organization, 
and just having really honest discussions about how they feel it is going. Oftentimes, just when people feel listened, it really helps in at least quashing some of the potential issues that might arise in the future. I think that's really good, especially if they're introverted. I think you need to establish checkpoints and tell them what you want to talk about and then give them a chance to prepare. But I do think, I don't think you can take silence as consent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe a last takeaway? I think if, you, if, you, if, if being right is more important to you than, than kind of making forward progress, probably shouldn't start a startup because you're not going to be able to negotiate effectively with customers and you're not going to be able to negotiate effectively with your co-founders. Absolutely. Definitely agree with that. All right. If you guys have any feedback on the discussion, any feedback about the relationship with co-founders, things that you've done that have helped, anything like that, feel free to share with me or Sean on Twitter at SK Murphy or Lean B2B. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Time to Market podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a like, leave a rating. It really helps in getting more B2B founders discovering the content. We'll keep working on new episodes and we'll see you next week for more actionable advice.